right, you may be seated, and we are going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 14 to 21. And um, this part of the scripture of, of Corinthians, and it's really up to this point, and it'll continue throughout the letter, speaks of relationships in the family of believers. So there's a spiritual connection that comes with new birth. When you're born again, born of the Spirit, you're now a part of the family of God. Previously, before you were born again, you were separated from God. Even if you spoke kindly of God or talked of godly principles and, and, and spoke of truth, and you lived a good life by outward measures, until you are born again, you are not in right standing with God. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus clearly stated in John chapter 3. You must be born again. And so that element, that reality, uh, that truth is very important because you must be born again to be forgiven, to be in right relationship with God. What that involve? What's that entail? It's really simple. It's complex because we're complex. But it's really simple. It's when you agree with God concerning your personal sin. It's when you, in the very heart of hearts, you agree with the truth that you are not perfect. That you have done things against God's righteousness, against Him as a person. And the result of that choice of yours, that rebellion, that sin, that we're told that the wages of sin is death. And so we know through sin, death entered the world. And so as a person, you know, I just, I'll just like, like, use myself as an example. When I come to that realization, it wasn't a really emotional moment. It wasn't even a, a lot of logic. It was a deep conviction in my heart that I've done wrong against God. And, and that I'm not right with God. But what was so beautiful is someone shared with me the truth of, you know, whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. And I thought, well, what's that mean to believe? Is just, do I just say the words, recite the, the sentence, and, and move on to, into eternity? And they, they were so beautifully just walked me through what it meant to believe, to put your trust in God, put your confidence in Jesus Christ, believing that he is God, that he died for your sins, that he went to the grave, that he bodily rose from the grave into heaven, conquering death and hell, proving himself to be God and victorious over sin. And so, that when that happens, when you put your trust in God, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're born again, you don't, you don't you're not changed immediately physically, correct? I, I kind of wish I was. I really do think this would have helped a little bit if I'd have got like an all-seeing eye and we all had one or we had this Holy Ghost tattoo that we could, people go, oh, he's born again, I can tell, he got the tattoo, or he got this. But it's interesting because there wasn't any observable, immediate manifestation that confirmed, correct? You didn't get another arm or a hand or another leg to keep you from stumbling. But what you did get was born again into the family of God. And being a new a babe in Christ, the Bible speaks of, you are nurtured and loved and taught this new life. This caring and this nurturing and this love is done through other people who also are born again. They're the ones that bring the divine truth. You had somebody bring the truth to you. Um, you had somebody that had spoke to you. You had actually people you didn't even know. They were praying for you. 
And when you come into the kingdom, when you're born again, God brought people into your life to continue to teach you the ways of God, to show you the work of God, to explain to you the word of God. And so some of us, you know, have had, you know, multiple people giving input and direction under the presence and guidance of God. And he does that through the person of the Holy Spirit. So it's not like somebody just said, well, I'm going to teach that person how to walk, walk with Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers an older person, maybe only by a week or two, to invest into an infant to teach that young believer, this one born again, the ways and the work of God. Now, for most of us, there is a, a primary person that was a part of that infant experience. There was somebody, a neighbor, a grandma, a, a co-worker, a, a somebody in your life, that they were the verbal means by which the truth of God was brought forward. And they shared with you. And we even seen, you know, through VBS, we were able to share some things and see kids respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's that person that brings this to you, which I think is fascinating, don't you? That he would take such weak vessels, such incompetent and incapable people, and put them within us, and then bring his truth through us for his glory and our joy. That we get to be a part of it. It's so exciting to me. It's so fascinating to me how God does that. Now, some of us have had, I think of like my own experience, and I don't think it's so unusual. We've had a Paul-like person in our lives. We've had that person who has been there to share the truth. And, and, and maybe they were you know, a leader that you know, brought it, and they were able to just continue to nurture you. I personally, my, my pastor, Pastor Bob, has been that influence in my life. You know, um, I've learned so much of, of loving God, of working through trials, of working through tremendous heartbreak and heartache and different things. And, and God just used that one instrument, not exclusively, but for some reason, primarily, to be the person that, I, that I've grown with. And maybe you have that too. Well, today, we can understand many of the ways of God by learning of the experiences of the Apostle Paul. Agreed? If you thought about why is this letter to the Corinthians, why is it penned, the heart of God coming through the hand of Paul? I believe it's pretty simple, and even in the other people of Scripture, because we can relate to it then. We can realize it's at a human level. Divine truth brought into us individually at a human level, and we can get it. You know, Paul was kind of a, kind of a whack job, so to speak, early on, agreed? He's going to... He's going to do God a favor. He's going to travel north above Damascus and start killing these Christian kind of people to protect Judaism. So here's a guy that's totally focused on fixing things for God. What was one of the problems? He was actually in rebellion to God. All the while when he said he's doing God a favor. So he wasn't like you know, the most righteous person, although religion would define him as perfectly righteous. But God said, I, I'm going I'm to do a work in this guy's life. And so with a little light show, a little bust off a donkey, he's laying there in Damascus, blind, outside of town, going, what was that all about? And he's saying, Lord, what do I do? How, what just happened? And he's changed and transformed. And so he then is this instrument that so many of these truths are brought through. It's the word of God, and he gets to be a vessel. And you and I are still learning from his life experience. Agreed? Those truths are brought through to you and I. Well, in our study today, Father's Day, 
I want to continue in 1 Corinthians 4. I want to pick up in verse 14 and go through verse 21. And what we're going to have here, we're going to, we're going to catch the context and then we also will consider the, the picture presented. There's a, a picture, a type of metaphor that likens the example of a physical father with that of a spiritual father. And so let's catch the context real quick. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church to deal with um, what is carnal or, or earthly uh, natural practices that it interfered with their spiritual growth. So like today the Corinthian church had slipped into a little bit of a problem. They were relating to one another on a horizontal level. And I use that simple analogy or picture to say the things of this earth, this horizontal level. So what they were doing is they were relating to one another at this level rather than this level. And so what I want to convey to you is the simple imagery and, and I believe principle. When you're born again, God wants to bring the truth to you, into you. So you understand horizontal, earthly principles, laws, concepts, theories. You understand them in the light of his presence, through the awareness of his word. He's bringing you know, eternal truths to this temporal realm, and we're to reason. Now we're to engage, we're to understand whether it's you know, laws of nature, whether it's certain observable truths. We're, this is our point of reference instead of just horizontal. The church got into horizontal. Paul has to address this competitive, these divisive practices. We know that because when we started the letter, we've seen in chapter 1, he conveys the important element of motive and the foundation of truth being love. He loved them so much, he, wanted, he knew he needed to be bringing correction and direction into the gathering of people called the church in the, in the city of Corinth. And so he addresses these divisive and these competitive practices because those things promoted arrogance and division within the church. And so as we pick up in chapter 4, verse 14, um, let's keep that in mind and we'll catch this short portion of, of Scripture. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Verse 18, now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So beginning here in verse 14, uh, recognizing he's addressing some difficult things, he makes known his motive. It's not to shame you. It's to warn you. Paul takes no chance in assuming they know his motive and love for them. Very important. He was not addressing this to put them down. His desire was to build them up. As I've mentioned, it's being Father's Day. and I'll draw some application and things in relation to just the role of a father. Um, and as I was re reading through this just this week and praying this through and, 
And I realized, you know, as a older person, I'm not old, I don't know where the measure of old starts, so I'm just older than I was yesterday. And so, but seriously, I'm, I've, I've passed the 60 mark and I'm on the second round of that whatever. Looking back on my life and realizing, you know, just how I handled things and how I did things, and, and you can beat yourself up as you, as you age, you know this. I should have done that, or I should have done this, and that happened because I did this, and you can really beat yourself up. Or you can be honest, and I, I want to be honest, I want to look back, and is one, one area as a pastor, and as a father, and even as a husband, I could have done a better job. I, could, I don't have to get through the long list, but this is the one I want to talk about. I could have done a better job of conveying my love. See, as a parent, especially sometimes as fathers, we assume that our children and the people around us know that we love them. And I've heard it said in this way, and I get the logic. It's like, of course I love you. I came home, didn't I? I went to work and came home. Like, what? Yeah, well, some may say, well, that's, how is that proving anything? Well, you don't understand. The guys at work were going to the bar. The other guys, you know, I, I got invited to the strip club, and all of a sudden everybody was going, but I know I, I did not go. And I didn't even tell her. I didn't even say to you why I didn't go. Of course I love you. To, to, to some of you, some of you ladies, like, men think like that? You only, you only question that because you're not married yet. But those who are married, like, oh, I kind of get into it a little bit. Sometimes guys just see things really simple. And, and I don't, I didn't, here's what my logic. I didn't want to say to my kids all the time, I didn't want to say to my wife all the time, I love you, I love you, I love you. Because I feel at some point I'm selling something. At some point, I'm like, I keep saying it so they know it because I'm not doing anything that would help them know it. So that's just, I'm not saying it's the right way of thinking. I'm just saying it's the way it's thinking. And so I had to stop at one point and realize, man, I, I've got to convey that when I have to deal with some of these difficult things as a parent, as a father, when you, are, you have to put your foot down or you have to be the one that makes the call, and, and really changes things that are imparts discipline within the, within the family dynamic. You really need to be aware. i got to somehow make sure they understand it's in love. My kids never said, oh, thank you, when you had to draw a line in the sand. They never went, oh, Dad, it's so sweet that you give us these opportunities to build character. I'm so glad that we get to do chores and take out trash and we can't go to our friend's house because you, you, you're looking out for us. What, what do kids generally conclude? That you have kids because you're lazy and you need someone to take out the trash. That's their assumption. It's not entirely accurate. They get to take out the trash, but that's not why we have kids. There's a point as we're making choices and decisions as leader, we got to make sure we... we we don't just assume people know that we're doing it for the right reason. And I'll let you each apply that. Many of you are much better at communication, verbal skills, and conveying, you know, your love to your children. But don't ever give up on that. And, and don't look back and go, I blew it too late for that. No, now's the great day to start. In humility and transparency, just address and make sure as much as you can that they understand why you're doing what you're doing. It's one of my heartbreaks many times because I don't believe that I was able to convey my role and my motive very well, especially as a father. And so then it's like, ah, I wish I could have communicated it more clearly so that they would then in their mind have this understanding as to why things had to be the way they were. Now, you can be sure when Paul says this, 
you know, I don't write this to shame you, I, I, but as I want to warn you, you can be sure that people in the Corinthian church, by chapter 4, verse 14 of this letter that they would have received, they already had their feelings hurt. Because he said, all right, you guys are you're carnal. You're... you're one of you says, oh, I follow Peter, and this guy likes Apollos, and I follow Paul, and you're divisive. I can't even address what I want to talk to you about because you're, you're earthly, you're horizontal, and you're not receiving from the Lord so that you can understand these things. So you know they got their feelings agreed because it, it, it wasn't just since 2020 that people have been getting their feelings hurt. It's been happening for a long time. But understand this. God's priority is not feelings. God's priority is not feelings. Feelings are very important, but they are not the most important. Feelings compel you. Emotions move you. Agreed? When you're here of something, there's something that builds up within you. When you're in disagreement, when uh, uh, someone's mistreated or something terrible has taken place, you're compelled, you're stirred. Those are good things. The Bible does say in Psalm 4, be angry and do not sin. So there's some things that we should be disturbed with, some things we should be happy about. But those things are not the priority, which we know we've went in so much the shift from objective covered with subjective. We went to subjective at the expense of objective. So it, it went from a factual with a, with a feeling covering to now just feelings and, and factuals are insults. So now we're in a society that's shifting globally, not just a society as, our, as a nation. So let me say it this way. Feelings are important, but they're not the steering wheel, nor are they the motor. They're more like the radio or climate control. Turn up the AC, turn up the heater, whichever you prefer, it's fine. But you know, God is concerned with the route and the direction of the vehicle more than the background and the climate control or the comfort. Does that help? They're very important things. But don't, I, sometimes people are like, well, I don't care about your feelings. Well, you should. Feelings are important. They're just not the most important. And Paul is writing, addressing things here that I know hurt feelings. But notice what he said. I don't write this to shame you, but, but to, give, to awaken you, to have you think things through more thoroughly, to warn you, my beloved children, my beloved children, when someone who loves you, that person, if they warn you, you should listen closely. Agreed? When you know they love you, when you have an engagement. Paul spent a year and a half, according to uh, Acts, I believe, 18. We know Paul was really discouraged when he was in Corinth. He had some situations come up that the Lord even spoke to him and told him, Hey, Paul, don't quit. Stay the course. I have many people with you in this city. So he stayed there a year and a half. And as he stayed there, he developed these relationships and he connected with the, with the people in a deeper way. And, and he did have a love. And that's what this portion of the letter is. You remind them, I love you guys. And so when someone who loves you gives you input, warning, if you would, you should listen closely. Agreed? See, some of us have parents or grandparents that are uh, more direct, more to the point. I think part of that, as people get older, we get older, and I've talked to some people who are way older than me. Some of you are here. But anyway, there's this interesting thing. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is true, but I kind of think it is. Like, I got more years behind me than I got in front of me. 
I'm not going to coddle you. Just stop doing stupid stuff. They may say that. You're like, oh, you hurt my feelings. Bummer. I don't know what to tell you. Stop doing stupid stuff. Stupid stuff will hurt you. And then you're like, but you know they love you. And you're willing to let that settle in a little more because they said something that hurt, but yet you know they said it in love because they want you to succeed and do well. See, if someone who doesn't like you, someone who doesn't care for you, they're self-serving and greedy, they warn you, you should listen cautiously because maybe they're just manipulating you for their own gain. You should still listen, agreed? Because there may be a little nugget of truth, maybe even an example of what not to do or never do, but you should listen. But when someone who loves you communicates to you, you should listen closely. That is an essential element of generational learning, because that's really what the Bible speaks of. Do you know that? That the older people teach the younger people, and the younger people learn from the older. And there's this beautiful blend from children to parents to grandparents and great-grandparents and this interaction of sharing of truth. Truth is poured into this child. As this child grows, he grasps these vertical truths, and those vertical truths are applied in a horizontal world. And that person then has children, and then their children have children. And this grandparent now is passing along these truths bringing them to the word, illuminating, bringing it up to the, to the individual. So I want to encourage you, motive is essential. And at the same time, be willing to listen. In this text, in verse 15, he says, you might have 10,000 instructors. The word he used there was a, a word fairly common, uh, even in, in, the, in the Greek and, and the Roman language and, and culture. And it, is a, it was a servant whose job it was to take the boys to school to keep an eye on them as an assistant to the parent. That person had authority, but very minimal compared to the parent. So he says, you might have 10,000 people to assist in learning, but notice what he says. But there really is only one father. In a sense, Paul is saying, I brought you, I caught you, and I taught you. What do I mean? I brought you. He brought them to the crossroad of conversion. He brought the truth to them in Corinth. We know that. I've mentioned he's already there. He was there a year and a half. And so as he brings them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they respond to this message, to this grace. God has already stirred in their hearts the knowledge of their own sin, the awareness of their need, and they respond. And so... He brought them and he caught them. What do I mean by caught? Well, having six kids and three of them, um, see, where were they born? We had one born in a hospital, one in a birthing center, I think three at home. So when they're born at home, you catch them. (laughs) And Paul was there at that very birthing, infant stage of their spiritual life. He brought them to the gospel. He caught them as the most early stage of their life as Christians, and he taught them. He then invested in them in a manner by which they could grasp the truth that he had. Do you think Paul knew more than an infant Christian could grasp? You know that. It's like a, a, a high school math teacher who has this truth, but he's subbing in the elementary grade, the first grade. And he knows geometry and trigonometry and all the cool other ometries. And yet he's going to teach addition and subtraction. 
Because he knows this, they've got to start here. I'll pour this into him. He taught them. And it's so important because Paul has this relationship, and he knows that the Holy Spirit has, has birthed them. He didn't, you know, you can't convert anyone, but you can be a part of this uh, nurturing and growing. Paul was an agent who was surrendered to God and used by God. And at the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul presented the gospel, received those who were born again, and taught them to trust God. It's like a good father would do. It's like a shepherd would do. Many of the analogies we see in Scripture. Now, Paul says something here in verse 16 that is it's very, um, I would say, convicting, I, I think encouraging. He says, imitate me. Therefore, I also urge you, imitate me. We're told in 1 Corinthians 11, and it would actually repeat this thing with a little more, maybe you could say, clarity. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Another portion of Scripture, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So he's conveying something that's very, very important that we can see what's happening here because it speaks a lot about Paul's personal journey with Jesus. When he says, learn from what you saw in me. Imitate what you saw God doing in my life. Allow that to take place in your life. It's not trying to duplicate. It's actually being open and willing to be transformed. You know, Paul's desire was for people to walk in the power of God, not just uh, ideas. See, in, in, in our gathering in, in, in America, in what we could even consider the church, so to speak, in, in a Western civilization-type philosophy or influence, many talk about the truths of God. The doctrines of Scripture, uh, the idea of godly living is, is frequently discussed and debated in, in Christian professed, professing Christian circles. But how many choose to live out the love they've been given? See, that's why I say this is convicting and encouraging. Follow me as I follow Christ, he says. He, he has, obviously, a consistency in his relationship, and, and there's a continuity, a continuousness to his uh, love for God. But he doesn't have to worry, like, uh, except for that time when I was in Thessalonica, or oh, don't, don't, don't do what I did in Berea. There's a, it's very powerful if you think about it. He could say, look at my life and do likewise. And I don't think very many of us can say that. As a young Christian, I could never say that. And even now, I'm reluctant to even imply I could say that. But I can say this, as I follow, follow me as I follow Christ, because you should be able to see those distinctions. Paul said to Timothy later, um, you know, let your progress be evident to all. So what he's conveying as you and I go from infant stage into spiritual adolescence, into teen years and young adults spiritually, let, it should be evident, it should be seen. And let it be seen. You know, you don't boast about who you are. Look what I've done. You just go, man, God is so good. His power is changing my life. I'm so glad. I want to know it more. I want to understand it in a deeper way. So let me just say it in grandfather fashion, you know, because I'm old enough. I am a grandpa. Let me just say it directly and succinctly and by way of, of encouraging. Quit the hypocrisy. Say goodbye to the compromising lifestyle. Take hold of the faith given to you and walk faithfully with God that you may truly say, follow me as I follow Christ. Do you know that every believer 
according to uh, Romans 12, also 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12 speaks of you were given a measure of faith. Do you realize that at, 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 be, at the moment you were born again, you were given a measure of faith. And then he teaches you how to walk by faith, walk in faith. And when you encounter something on this life's journey called a trial or a tribulation, God faithfully pours into you more faith to be put into practice in that point of your life. And so I believe all of us, we want to walk faithfully, take hold of the faith given and ask by faith, God, I don't even know what that faith looks like in my life right now. This financial stress, this personal trial, this reality, would you, I just need your help to walk by faith. You're not doing it to impress people, but the end result is you can encourage people to imitate what you went through. Remember when I was going through this situation and we talked? Well, guess what? The whole family thing got changed and this got worked out and God was so faithful. And you can convey to someone a practical work of the power of God. It wasn't your discipline. It wasn't your church choice. It wasn't, you know, something you've done. It was by learning to walk by faith in the power of God. Now, let's continue on because he says, you know, I imitate me as I, you know, uh, I urge you, imitate me. Verse 17, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who's my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Timothy was sent to be a, uh, not just a sounding board, but for someone to, to question. It's like, so how did Paul handle this? How did Paul deal with this? Do you see what he said? Therefore, I sent Timothy to you for this reason. And so Timothy goes to remind them and to warn them, to be a voice, to speak of Paul's consistency. He's not elevating Paul. He's speaking of the power of God through the life of the person we know as Paul. And so what do we see? What are Timothy's qualifications? Just embedded within this one verse. What are some things we can just open up and look at really quickly? Well, he sent Timothy, and he, Timothy is beloved. Timothy, I believe, had that relationship with Paul. I believe there was challenges. There was personality variances. There was, there was age differences. But, but I believe Timothy knew he was loved. I believe Paul conveyed to him. Because he says it right here. It's my beloved Timothy. Timothy was, was one who knew he was loved, who was beloved by Paul. Timothy was faithful. Notice it says, speaking of Tim, Timothy, he's beloved and faithful. He was faithful. He walked, and Paul knew, I'm an, I can send Timothy. He's going to speak the truth, and he's going he's to convey to them what I've spoken, and not in blind support of me as a follower of Paul, but as a son in the Lord, he will speak the truth. What a great quality that we, we see even within the Timothy, and it carries me into the third point that he, he was a son in the Lord. I believe Paul was confident that Timothy will put God first, and if there's something that's contrasting God's will in Paul's life, Timothy would bring it up. So in other words, he's not just going to go promoting Paul. Does that make sense? He's a son in the Lord, and, and Timothy honored the Lord. The last thing I would mention that you can see, and I believe it's something we're considering in our own lives and how they would be expressed. Timothy is an honest spokesman concerning Paul's conduct on the road. I think of that because... Some jobs, some, sometimes, you know, men, you know, we have to go on the road. 
We have to leave our work environment, maybe for work purposes, and go to another city, go on the road. And there's a pleasant peace when you live a life that's consistent, that's the same in Christ. What am I talking about? Well, let me just share our experience with, as a young Christian. I'm learning how to live life and trying to figure it out as I go. And I'm working. I worked in a truck shop doing rec repair on semis for 20 years. And in the middle of that, I got saved. So I continued in that, in that, in that job, in that journey. And at one point, they sent me to, they sent me to several different cities at, at various times for training or whatever. But I remember they sent me to Seattle. And as I got in Seattle, I got to the hotel room, and it was a really weird thing I'd never experienced before. You can do whatever you want. You're at the hotel. I can watch what I want. I can do what I want. I can go where. It was kind of scary, quite honestly. And I know many men who have, have crashed hard in this area. There's, it's weird how you just go on the road, and all of a sudden, you, you're outside the constraints of familiarity, but yet now you're in a point of temptation. It's like, are you the same on the road as you are at home? Because Paul, that's what Timothy will support. Yeah, he was the same. He was the, the same person. And so I just want to encourage you, those of you who face that temptation and that opportunity to like, look the wrong way, um, you know, don't buy the lie. There's a, a phrase that's uh, promoted, and you guys have heard it. And, you know, what happens in Vegas stays on your medical record. Well, actually, a little variation of the truth. What happens in Vegas shows up in your marriage. Oh, wait, no, that's not how it goes, is it? The world says, hey, when you're out on your own, you're on your own. Nobody needs to know. Guess what? It will be a weight on your heart and a problem in your marriage, even though supposedly nobody knows. Because it's deception. It's inconsistency. Consistency, a consistent life brings a pleasant peace. And a contrary life brings a lot of internal confusion. It'll bring, a contrary life will bring, you know, just rugged, difficult interaction. It'll bring sleeplessness. It'll bring night terrors. These are just things I know in, in engaging with people and in talking that are directly related to these poor decisions. So I want to encourage you, especially you men, you know, as you face these various things, realize, just stay the course with Jesus. You know, when you're a different person at work, by your vocabulary, by your attitude, by your pride, than you are at church or among, quote, spiritual peers, then life gets complicated and wearisome. Why do some people not experience the joy why God, God has designed? Because they're weighed down with these secrets. And it's a, it's a difficult thing for sure. Let me just say it this way as I wrap this up. Set these goals. Love and be loved. Love and be loved. Let people love you. Learn how to love them. Number two, be faithful. Learn to be faithful. Grow in that area and understanding. Number three, remember who you are because that will affect how you are in different places. You're a child of the king. Represent the king wherever you go. Number four, be consistent. It's a little bit of a Popeye theology. I am what I am. But there's a truth to it. Be you and let God do what only God can do in you. Don't, don't try to be somebody else, but just be you and allow God to do the work. Let him bring about change in your life, believing that he's faithful, that he's capable, that he loves you, and that he desires for you to mature and to grow. 
Now, Paul, as we see in verse 18, I've got to pick up the pace slightly. Paul, in verse 18, he addresses a reality. He knew some were arrogantly indifferent towards him. And rather than avoid it, he simply stays true to his purpose. What did he say his motive, his purpose was? He, he, I do not write to shame you, but to warn you. Because see, it happens in engagement among people. It happens in many different facets and elements of life. People get puffed up. It literally means arrogant, inflated egos. It really is a sad reality among people that we can think highly of ourselves at various times. And even I'll just share some things that, you know, I know, um, you know, many men, I include myself in this category, have, have dealt with things maybe not in the best way. Often as fathers, we speak confidently when in reality, we don't know as much as we need to know. Fathers can be, there'll be times when dads, they just need to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Just zip it for a minute, dad, and let the conversation go. Just be patient, because we don't always do that. Sometimes we're not swift to hear and slow to speak. It's not just a dad thing, it's a people thing. Things like this, you know, um, I've done it, I've seen it done, this is how you do it. This is how you're supposed to be. You know, we unleash a verbal barrage of do this or do that or stop that and start this. And, and, and from now on, this is how it's going to be. Has anybody ever said? You don't have to raise your hands. Anybody ever said, from now on, this is how it's going to be. Well, what's the problem with that? This tyrannical tirade leaves people hurt and confused while we walk away saying, I really set them straight. It's contemptible. And we compliment ourselves as we talk to ourselves and we don't stop and go, what a mess. I just made a situation, a scenario that was challenging. I just made a mess. I just, oh, you know. So you guys may think I'm the only person who's that way. I actually don't think it's so uncommon, sadly. I learned many relational engagements and communication. I learned it in a truck shop. I, I learned it... Um, from people who didn't know the Lord. I learned that's just how you do it. It's a macho thing. It's a tough guy thing. It's a get-to-the-point thing. It's a damaging and destructive thing if you do not understand how to communicate in love. If you cannot convey it, do not be puffed up. Why do men do that so much? And that's not just men. Don't, don't go home and try to badger somebody. <laughs> why do people do it that way? I'll tell you one reason why. It's just easier. It's easier to come in and say, don't do that anymore. Start doing it that way. Both of you knock it off. You go clean your room. I'm done and walk off. I don't have to do anything now. I just lay down the law. I just set out the rules. I made it how it is. That's how it's going to be. And I don't have to think. It's just lazy. It's lazy. And I can just say, this, that's just how it's going to be from now on. And, and, and you have two reactions, like fear and folly. Like, who? he's really uptight. Like, <laughs> you don't ever. I had my kids laugh at me one time. When I, when I, you know, I was, I was like general do-it-all. I was like major disaster. I laid down the law, and this is how it's going to be. And I started up the stairs, and they're all sitting on the couch. And I heard this, <clears throat> and I looked through the post as I started up the stairs. And they're like, they're just like, it, they're tense. Three of them are so tense because they knew they couldn't laugh yet. They had to wait till I was out of sight. And it broke my heart because I'm like, 
And I remember one time I started up the stairs, I turned around, went back, and I said, that was the wrong way for me to deal with that, and I apologized. And it was the grace of God to even bust through my male ego to get that done. And when I apologized, I have not heard such intense laughter in a long time. No, they weren't laughing at the apology. They were relieved that they can now express themselves over something that was so childish on their parents' part. So anyway, enough of like my glimpse into the days gone by. I just want to encourage you, make sure even when people are indifferent to you, that you're the same. If someone's puffed up and, and, and antagonistic and egotistic, why do you get to be different? If they're that way, you just pray for them. You tolerate them to some degree. You do what you can do. But you shouldn't take on their likeness, correct? You have another one to imitate, to be like. So let's take a look at verse 19. If I come to you shortly, uh, if the Lord wills, I will know. And, and not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. Paul was hopeful, he was prayerful, that he would be able to reconnect with the Corinthian believers. His warning, if you would, um, would be, could be put this way. Words are confirmed by action. Those who are puffed up and were influential and causing division and, and problems, you know, Paul knew, when I get there, we'll know what's really going on. The power of God is a necessity in the life of a Christian. You know, there's gatherings. Um, you know, people can come together. They, it happens all the time in various things, whether it's athletic endeavors or entertainment realm or even in the church. Gatherings can be stirred by, by and people can be moved by persuasive, uh, motivational, somewhat charismatic leaders. Crowds can be excited, emotions stirred, actions and tasks presented. Go team go is declared. And a lot of busyness can take place. But is the power of God present? That's what we want to ask. Is the power of God present? It's, it's kind of, to me as a leader, it's very fascinating because I'm like, I want to know that we're walking in the power of God, not just some form of organization or type of order or somewhat of a semblance to structure to where we're, yeah, that's evident. The numbers are not a measure, do you realize that, of God's work? Because if that was the case, the, the more people involved, then that, the more the verification that God's doing it, then those churches that are contrary to the will of God, that are teaching, you know, lies about God. I was raised with the, with the Mormon influence. And, and their doctrine, the, the teaching, I love the people, but the teaching that's brought to them is that, that Jesus offered an alternate plan of salvation, and his spirit brother, Lucifer, presented a plan, and Lucifer was rejected by the Father, so therefore Jesus was accepted, and so that's how this whole salvation thing come about, which is, it is blasphemous to say certain things that they teach about who Jesus is. And so, but they're really popular. In this area, if you measure up mathematics and popularity and attendance, you'd have to say, well, gosh, that must be really a work of God. No, it does not necessarily mean it's a work of God. Numbers do not tell you that. What tells you that? Is there, what's the, what is the power of God? What verse, what, what passage, you know, is there anything we can reference to get a base level, a foundational understanding of the power of God? And I would say there is. If you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Specifically in, in verse 16. Romans 1 verse 16. 
And it reads, you know, as you think about what's being presented here, he's simplifying and stating at a very practical level, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is he not ashamed? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. What is the power of God? Salvation. The changing of lives, not just the discipline, but the new life, the regeneration. Born again, born of the Spirit, and then that life now lived out. We can consider also uh, chapter um, 1 Corinthians 15, specifically there in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, as he kind of puts it, listen, this is the important thing to remember. This is where I would condense it. This is what I want you to walk away with. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That that, the power of God that, that took Jesus to the grave raised him from the grave, conquering death and hell, and then conveyed, offered, transferred to you and I his victory. That his life would be in us. Our life would be an expression of his victory. That is the power of God. And so I I just look at this and go, man, we want to make sure we we stay in sync. We don't get too caught up where we're measuring the wrong things. I want to know the power of God in my life. I want to know it today. I want to know it every day. I'd like to have a formula or a check sheet. I don't. The only thing I know is abide in Christ. Stay close to Jesus. Let's wrap this up with verse 21 out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? See, we know Paul's heart was for believers to grow, to mature, to know the love of God. Paul had a tremendous heart for the church. You can say it no other way. His second letter he'll send over to the church in Corinth. In chapter 11, you know, he spends a few verses, 23 to 27, speaking of the stripes and the labors and the perils and the weariness and the toil and the sleep and all these things he went through choosing to follow Jesus Christ. Those were things that qualified him for ministry according to his way of presenting it. But we know also it says in the last part of that section, verse 28, besides the other things, what come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. He had a deep concern, not a consuming worry. We could study that later. But a deep concern for the churches where he was there because he wanted to see them grow. And he knew sometimes he had to address hard things and, and difficult situations. And if you look back with me now to verse 21, you can see where we made this connection. How do you want me to deal with this? See, Paul understood that indifferent, puffed up people will cause division and heartbreak within the church. And as a leader, he had to take a stand and address some very difficult things. So he was not afraid of confrontation. Some things need to be met head on in straightforward fashion. Done with kindness, with compassion, but directly. He's basically saying, how do you want to deal with this? Kindly, gently, graciously, where we can just talk this through and see the truth that's important? Or will I have to get up in your grill? Because that's really what he's saying. You want to, you want to just like, look, we want to, how do you want to deal with this? Because it's not going away. It's not going to fix itself. When I come and when I get there, we're going to deal with it. It has to be done. We live in a time where 
I believe keyboard courage and screen time has, has caused uh, too much of a put it off to later mentality. We, we just, this is not my opinion. This is a, a documented statistic, a reality that people more and more avoid any form of conf confrontation. I'm not saying you should go looking for a fight. I'm just saying we tend to shy away from things we need to deal with instead of ignoring them. And Paul is just saying, I, I'm gonna, we got to deal with this. When I get there, I would really love to sit down with you and we could just kind of walk through this. But if you're going to be indignant, we're going to go toe-to-toe because God loves his church and Paul loved the church and he's just saying, listen, we're going to deal with this. So we have the worship team come up. I got to wrap this up. I keep saying that. I said it several times and, and I'm going to do it, you know, in, within a half hour. Easy. So just kidding. Some of you had fear strike you in the eyes. So 1 Corinthians 15. I love to end our time together with a passage. I am confident that God shows us anytime we'll seek, he'll show us within the, con with the text we looked at or outside of it, a summary, an application, something to put into practice based on the truth that he's laid out for us. So if you'll stand with me, we will pray. And we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 58, along with verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. We're going to read them, look at them. I will be referencing them with an attitude, a mindset of prayer. Will you join me in prayer? God, thank you for this study, for this that what you've walked us through today. And I pray, Lord, you would, you would take from such a wide range of, of thought and, and application, you would bring it to an individual understanding for each one of us, that we would walk in truth because we're born again. If we're not yet born again, that we put our faith in you this very moment, that we would be people changed, God. Beloved brethren, that we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, God. Because we know we would understand and we would ascertain and that with accuracy the labor we're about, what we're doing, is not in vain in you, God. And so help us. Give us awareness. Give us a spiritual sensitivity that we could watch. Give us a tenacity, a courage, and a commitment that we could stand fast in the faith, that we would be brave and strong. And God, may it be true as we engage and interact. Let all that we do be done with love. Oh, Lord, we sing to you and we praise you. We thank you for this day. In your name, Jesus. Amen.